Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. I typically write my own introductions for my podcast guests, but this one's so good, I just have to steal it. So here goes. If you Google Tim Sackett, you'll find our Tim and a truck driver chaplain. Our Tim is not the truck driver chaplain, although how awesome would that be if he was? He is a prolific writer in the HR and TA space who just happens to also run an engineering and IT contract staffing agency, HRU Technical Resources, out of Michigan. He also writes every day at his own blog, The Tim Sackett Project, and weirdly, he's known as an expert in workplace hugging, which was kind of cool years ago, but now seems painfully creepy, and we still love him as he's fairly harmless. That's what it says on the uh, Fistful of Talent, which is one of the organizations that Tim has helped found and bring about as a kind of a major voice in the whole talent acquisition expert area. That's the introduction on the Fistful of Talent, which is one of the organizations that Tim has helped to found. And uh, he's still the chief storyteller there, but that's not all he does. He is also a founding board member of the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals, ATAP, which is, by the way, a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you very much, ATAP. He's a lifetime Michigan State Spartan fan, husband to Hall of Fame wife, And by the way, we talk about that on the podcast. He's got three sons and his best friend, Scout, which by all accounts looks to me to be a a labradoodle, I think. He wrote a book with Sherm called The Talent Fix. He's got a couple of others coming out, which we talk about too. You're going to love my conversation with Tim Sackett. What what a dude. What a a big voice in this industry. And um, as far as I can tell, he doesn't sleep at all because he's just so darn busy creating content and bringing about a strong voice in what is a, you know, pretty crowded marketplace. So I feel really honored to have brought him um, to the podcast and I hope you really enjoy our conversation. But first, a quick reminder about our sponsors, ATAP, as I mentioned, and also, of course, the RPOA, the Recruitment Process Outsourcing Association. If you have any inkling toward RPO, you should be a member of RPOA to get good information, insights, webinars, content online and uh, I'm, I'm a fan. So highly recommend that as well as ATAP, the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals to make you better at what you do, whether you're in RPO or not, whether you buy RPO or not, whether you are a corporate ATAP type person, uh, it's all there. So without further ado, I would love for you to listen now to my conversation with Tim Sackett. Enjoy. All right, Big Fish listeners, I am here today with Tim Sackett, y'all. I, I know, I know you can't even believe it, right? But I got this guy <laughs> in my podcast, but uh, he's here and I'm here and I'm going to ask him all kinds of interesting questions, um, not about, not, not only about his work and his career, but his life and who he is and frankly, how he manages it all, because there's a <laughs> lot. <laughs> if you're Tim Sackett, there's a lot to manage. So I, I, I have to learn about all this. That's what my wife says every day. <laughs> <laughs> you just need a clone. That's all. 
Good. And uh, so, so uh, without yeah. further ado, Tim, uh, I, I'll, I'll give you a little space here. Uh, say hi to my listeners, if you would. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, you know, it, it's funny, like Aaron, my wife always calls me a micro celebrity. She's like, yeah, there's like, you know, like a half a dozen, you know, TA, you know, leaders in the, in the world that like, you know, know who you are, or even care. And she would always kind of make fun of this as, as I'm going literally like all over the place speaking and especially when the book launched and all this stuff. And, and we were happened to go on vacation and we were going, have you ever been to like Detroit Metro airport? It's like, yeah, a mile, sure. it's like a mile long, like the Delta, you know, mm-hmm. concourse. And they have those long, like moving walkways. And, and we're, it was, it had to be like a Thursday afternoon, like at three o'clock, there's nobody in the airport. Right. And so we're coming down and we're just kind of have our suitcases and getting ready to go on, you know, on a trip and somebody's coming the other way and they're like, Hey, are you Tim Sackett? And she, she literally died. Like that never happens. And she literally just was like, I am not going to fit your head into the plane. <laughs> and I'm like, I just thank the good Lord above that that happened when you were standing next to me <laughs> because you're the one that teases me nonstop. Cause she never would have believed it otherwise. Like <laughs> oh, if, never if, if you told her it. afterwards. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Well, you know what? A little validation goes a long way. Because if you work hard work. and you try to produce stuff that's valuable, yeah, it's all right. Somebody <laughs> recognizes you in an airport. That's great. So you get recognized in an airport. And oh, by the way, from what I understand, your wife is a Hall of Famer. So does she get recognized in the airports as well? Not, or what, what's not that as about? much as I do. Yeah. No, she... <laughs> She, it was, um, I, I said that, like, I remember the first time I ever said that I put that like on a slide, you know, on a, on a PowerPoint deck and I'm like, you know, talking about my, like just introducing yourself and you're like, oh, and I have a hall of fame wife and people are like, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. I wish my husband would go and tell her, you know, they have a hall of fame wife. And I go, no, she's really in the hall of fame. She played volleyball for the university of Wyoming and got inducted into their hall of fame from an athletic standpoint. So I just, when I put it down there, I didn't really realize how people would react, but they reacted like, so like, oh my gosh, it's so sweet. <laughs> so I yeah. just kept it in there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, uh, and I mean, that's legit. So, okay. So that you went to the university of Wyoming as well. So that must've been Undergrad, where, yeah. where you met. Uh, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. In fact, the uh, first week I was there. Yeah. Cool. Great. And you've got three kids. Is that what I understand? Three boys, um, two who graduated college during the pandemic and one wow. who is a junior in high school. And so he'll be finishing his last year here coming up and then heading off to university. So mm-hmm. That's awesome. Has he made a choice? Well, he, he wants to, um, it's funny because we, you know, we're in Michigan, so it's either you're a Michigan state or a Michigan kind of fan. Mm-hmm. We grew up really close to Michigan state. I grew up a Michigan state fan. So we've had season basketball, football, our kids have gone to Michigan state games their entire lives and been on campus. And, but you know, a funny thing happens when you're so close to a campus, like to them, it's not a big deal, even though it's like a great Big Ten school and all this. They just look at it like, oh, I, yeah, more we've been there our whole lives. It's like high school to them. So none of them really wanted to go. Um, my my middle son went to Michigan. And so we, that was the big joke in the family. It was like, well, you got cut out of the will. <laughs> and now my youngest son wants to go to Michigan. But he goes, if I don't get into Michigan, his backup school is Michigan State. I'm like, so wait, I might have a Michigan State like <laughs> graduate eventually in my family. So we'll see how that goes. I've got a boiler maker 
who's yeah. in Chicago and a uh, University of Denver grad who's in Denver. So mine Two are spread schools. out a little bit, yeah. but yes, great schools and um, we're very proud of them. So yeah, it's pretty cool being on the other side of all of that hard work, raising the kids <laughs> for sure. So, all right, well, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about, hang on one more thing about your kids. Do they have any idea what you do? Could they explain it to somebody? Well, yeah, my older my older one actually interned two years with us, and I actually had him intern one one summer as like a sourcer kind of assistant, right? So he had to get on the phones and try to track down candidates. Um, so he completely knows. My middle son actually produces my podcast, okay, and cool. has done. It, and he's he works for marketing um, for BuzzFeed in New York City, but like he does some of the like side gig work, like all these kids do. Mm-hmm. Um, the younger one, he would probably have a harder time um, explaining what they do. And then it's one thing to know like the day job, like it's like you had mentioned, I think kind of in, in the, in the intro is like, you know, with all of the writing and speaking and all of the social media stuff, that's like a second career. It's like, Mm -hmm. I have two full-time jobs that are kind of running parallel. And so they all kind of just go, we don't get it. We don't get why people want to ever come to any place and listen to you. (laughs) (laughs) You're just dad. (laughs) <laughs> exactly to them like we, they, we to listen to you all the they time. don't want to hear one more thing i have to say <laughs> <laughs> okay oh what fun well so the the all that let's talk about that so uh i'm pretty sure i don't have a complete list but loxo board of advisors atap i was on i was on i was on atap yeah yep nope no longer part of the founding board yep 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 and uh uh, of course, fistful of talent since forever, yeah. you know, writing for them. You're on the Burson Academy uh, faculty, which is yep. fairly new, right? 2020, yeah, yeah. they asked you to yep. join, which is super mm-hmm. cool. I'm, I'm a subscriber, so I saw that happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and then Michigan Recruiters Association or Michigan Recruiters Conference. Conference. I think you you put that together. We're going to launch that, yeah. With others. Okay, so all that on the side of running a company, hello, which for most people would be enough of a headache. So so I'm trying to put all this together and I'm like, okay, either you're super deadline driven and you just set these amazing goals for yourself and meet them, or you have an amazing team around you at HRU who really does all the work and then you just sort of fly in occasionally and make some decisions and then go back and do some other stuff. <laughs> I mean, what's the truth? What, what's the reality of how you apportion your time? Yeah, it's probably in the middle. Um, I do have an amazing team. So like my leadership team at HRU, we've been together a minimum, like so the top five people have been together a minimum of 11 years, right? So... When you're when when you have that leadership team together that often uh, or that for that long in the tenure, in really high performing people, you know it does make my job as a CEO pretty easy. Like I don't, I can go away and go on vacation for a week, and I, I never have concerned that something you know is going to fall down or something like that. And and I'm not a micromanager by any means, so I you know I definitely um, know what I want to happen, and then I give you know people kind of the freedom to go out and, and make that happen. So I'm also not a person. I'm I'm a very much of like just get it done and ship it, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not a perfectionist, which I mean people who read my stuff will go, yeah, we saw that. Like we can see all your errors. Um, I don't I mean literally and I've had like friends of mine that would have begged like please like we'll pay, you know, to have an editor, right, for your blog. And and I'm just like, no, I don't I don't want that. I want to be able to just write and go 
and what you find out, like I've been writing every day for a decade. So like when you write every day, like you, you know, some of the stuff is, is exceptional. Some of the stuff is crap. A lot of it's just in the middle, but it seems to connect with people differently. So, and again, I blame Chris Dunn for starting the writing thing. Cause I never saw myself as a writer. It just kind of happened, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so how does that sort of germinate? How, what, how should we picture the, do you just literally sit down and it starts to pour out of your fingers or are you like no, laying no. in bed at midnight going, you know what I want to say tomorrow is <laughs> A, B, C, and D. I mean, one is like, yeah, how the sausage is made. I don't write every day, right? I schedule posts to go every day, but I usually end up writing one or two days a week and literally for just a couple of hours a week on average. And I didn't know this until I started blogging for Fistful of Talent. And then I, a couple of years into Fistful, I started my own blog that I had a skill set, which is you could give me any topic and in 15 minutes, I could give you 500 words. Some, sometimes it would be really good. <laughs> Most of the time it would just be average. Sometimes mm-hmm. it would be garbage. And there's, there is some technique uh, a little bit to it. Like when I first started, Chris is like, Hey, just go out and find a really good article. Right. And then just have an opinion about it. And then you can actually cut and paste some of the per- stuff that somebody else wrote. And then you have an opinion and you can really chunk out a lot of content just by that. Now I don't do that much of any more. If anything, I will, I'll link to an article that people say, and I'll, and I'll respond, but I won't, I won't spend half the space of just putting their words in my blog post. <laughs> and that's kind of a trick, you know, for new bloggers that are struggling to come up with content. But I didn't know I had that skill. And Chris and I both kind of have it because we run into so many people that will go, oh, I want to blog and I want to start this and I want to do this. And they get 30, 60, 90 days into it. And all of a sudden they're just like, I, I don't have anything else to say. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know how to help you because I have 10 ideas a day I could write on. Like I constantly, <laughs> I, I will email myself on average, probably four to five times a day of an idea of a post that I want to write. And then when I sit down to write, I just go through the posts and I just kind of go or go through the ideas and go, yep, that one still resonates and I still want to write about it. Sometimes mm-hmm. like I'll send myself like three words and I'll go back like a week later and I go, I have no idea why I sent myself <laughs> those three words. <laughs> Random words. Okay. And, and so that's your technique. It's sort of, it pops into your head. You email yourself. Literally email yourself. It's not yeah. just like a little list on like your email. phone or anything. No, okay. I, I do. Mm-hmm. I'm an email person. I'm mm-hmm. just my comfort zone. So I will email myself because I think with an outlook, I have like all the folders and stuff. So I can keep myself somewhat organized by just, and then, you know, it's easy to search and do all that. Mm-hmm. So it makes it make in my workflow that works really well. Cool. So should we expect another book anytime soon? Yeah. Um, have already have actually, I have, I have two more in the works. So the, it's the bigger part is sitting down. The one I have the actual kind of, you know, like skeleton for it and know exactly kind of what I want to write. The other one, um, Chris Dunn and I are going to write together about performance management. Um, we have some really, I think, we believe the same thing when it comes to performance. And we really believe that's kind of a driver of what everything, right, that happens. Um, whether huh. you talk about selection, you talk about tenure, you talk about DNI, like everything still revolves around performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and people tend to forget about that. So we, we're going to write a book in that. But he has one, his second book is already in works as well. So we have to get through our second books to get to the third book. And so, yeah, it'll happen eventually. Yeah. And, and the, the, 
Sherm uh, was, I think, your publisher for your first one, The Talent Fix. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, so the, the title uh, so, for my the title for my second book is Bullshit and Khakis: um, Surviving Corporate America. And Sherm has said they won't publish that title, and I have said that's the only title I'll use. Mm-hmm. They'll either have because we contractually they have rights of first refusal, so they'll either publish that one or they'll have to refuse it and I'll find another publisher. So yeah, yeah. but well, I, there I you think. Go. I think they will. Before Johnny came in, there's no way they would have. I think uh, Johnny Taylor is much more, um, much more willing to bring take on risk a little, mm-hmm. um, and actually push HR a little bit more out of his comfort zone than some of the former former CEOs of Sherm. So, so you run a staffing firm. Your background is talent acquisition. Your edgy style, I would say, fits really well with uh, that part of HR. I mean, let's face it. You know, recruiting is the sales arm of HR and tends to be, you know, maybe a little bit more marketing focused, a little more edgy. You, you get a little more degrees of freedom, performance management, not so edgy. <laughs> How does your style fit into writing a book about PM? We do think, we think it is, we think it can be and both, mm-hmm. you know, that that's one of the, the issues we face is one of the reasons so often you hear, and this is like the classic fast company thing, which is, you know, why, you know, why everybody hates HR and why hiring managers and kind of people managers hate HR is because we become so compliant oriented. Right. And I think when we talk about driving great performance, ultimately that's not really on HR. It's on the, it's on the hiring managers, but I have this belief that HR should be the chief performance officer for an organization. Right. I think, if we own performance, our executive team will look at us differently, right? That CHRO would have a different, a different view from the CEO, COO, you know, CIO of all those others that are out there. If they said, Hey, this, their, that team, that HR team is really driving better performance across the organization and not from a compliance standpoint, but from an actual, let's help managers be better performance managers, right? Let's help people understand what performance, what really performance is and what it's not, you know, across the board. And I think we get, sometimes we get so stuck in leadership soft skills that we forget at the end of the day, this still becomes performance, right? It still becomes about performance. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, again, it'll be in our same our same kind of tongue in cheek and having fun and making fun at the same time, there'll be a lot of learning and real stuff there. So no doubt. <laughs> well, good for you for making the connection. And I think um, when it comes to talent acquisition, connecting with performance and performance management, you know, that's the Holy grail of the quality measure, right? So yeah. we, we we're sort of stuck in the nineties with measuring early attrition as the quality measure. Well, what about actually connecting how we assessed the person to how they actually ended up performing, right? So is is exactly. am I making too much of a leap that you're going to make that connection too, or maybe take it to the next level? No, I think it, I think it all fits together, right? I think when we take a look at selection, and you know, we want to go back and to me, the quality of hire measure never belongs in NTA. That's a complete hiring manager metric that we've messed up completely. And it's because unless you're going to say to me as a CEO to say, hey, Tim, you're running TA for our company, you get to make every selection, then great, put quality of hire on me. But if I don't select them, then who is that against? Now, I understand that we could say, hey, it's a shared metric, right? Because if I'm bringing a better quality of applicant to to my managers, then thus they should be able to make a better quality of hire selection. But once they select, 
They're the ones training, managing, driving performance. And ultimately the quality of hire metric is, is did, did the person that we hired to replace the person that was there, are they better or not? Right. Um, in terms of a quality of hire. And we, like you said, we tend to say, Oh, well, we measure quality of hire by if they stay 90 days. Well, what the hell did that tell you? You know, that they just stayed around longer. By the way, if I'm a manager being held accountable to quality of hire at 90 day turnover, I'll just keep them for 91 days and then fire them. Like, it's just so stupid. It's not even funny. Right. Um, and we see those bad behaviors happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And TA needs to take some responsibility though, to the extent that they design the process, that they choose the assessment tools, that they run the candidate experience, you know, all that points toward being able to actually acquire the best talent or at least not repel the best talent. Right. So um, are, are, are you really steadfast in that it really is the hiring manager who should take full responsibility? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I have an entire chapter in my book about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think this is one failure in talent acquisition is that we, we raise our hand and say we own talent when we don't own talent at all. Now, I think it's if we get to an organization and I've worked in organizations where we had this happen and amazing things can happen where hiring managers raise their hand and say, hey, I own talent, right? I own the talent of my team. Mm-hmm. And regardless if you can help me or not, it's still my responsibility to make sure I have the talent on my team that I need to make sure we perform the greatest as we can from the function standpoint. Because here's what happens when you have a hiring manager that acts like that. Now as a TA team, I can really support that hiring manager. I, we can do a lot of cool stuff. We can give them a better, we can help them do, you know, design a better candidate experience. We can help them design a better selection process, a better assessment process. If I'm just saying, Hey, I did all of this. Now I'm going to bolt it onto you and you have to do this. And they're just like, I did, this sucks. Like, I don't, this isn't how I would do this. Isn't what I want to do. This isn't how I'm going to drive my team. That's where there's this huge disconnect. I've had three heads of TA, corporate heads of TA positions offered to me that I've eventually accepted in my career. And every single time I had to sit down with a CEO and they're just like, and it was that meeting where they're like, they, you like, both of us kind of knew, right? It was just kind of like, hey, CEO wants to meet, but pretty much they're just going to offer you the job. And the question always comes. They're like, you know, Tim, what, you know, what, what question can I answer for you? And I just said, like, who owns talent? And they, you know, they almost jump out of their chair. They can't wait because they've been waiting. They're like, uh, you, we, that's what we hired you. That's how we're going to hire you. You own talent. And then I always go, there's been a combination, combination of answers, which is one is, well, that job sucks. I don't want that job. And then because it, because it creates a real kind of change moment that has to happen for talent acquisition to really put themselves in a position to be good within an organization. Or it's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I can't wait to select every single person that works here. This is going to be the greatest job ever. And they go, no, 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 no. Uh, oh, but uh, that's the hiring manager that has to do the selection. You don't. And then they go, oh crap. Now, because they, they answered the question themselves, who owns talent, right? And they, so then they, because it has to be an executive led kind of thing. They can't sit there and go, and I've sat in too many corporate like boardrooms where all hell is breaking loose, some measure or some revenue or something's not being met. And some executive from some function stands up and they're getting their ass handed to them by the CEO. And they look over at me as a TA leader, or they look over at the HR leader and they go, well, if I had the talent, then I could do, I can meet these goals, but I don't. And they start shifting blame versus going, 
wait a minute, what if our entire TA team got hit by a bus tomorrow, right? And mm-hmm. they all died. And you came in tomorrow as, uh, you know, a leader of a function. Are you just going to go, well, I just couldn't, the TA team died. What do you want us to do? Like, I can't hire anybody. No, you'll go hire people, right? It's not that difficult. We're not trying to launch the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about networking and finding great talent. And if you have a team and you're a good leader, here's the thing. We, we all know this as TA leaders. Our best leaders don't have trouble hiring. They, they People are begging to work for them, right? So if we can turn every leader into our best leaders, our job as TA leaders becomes one of how do we help you just be, even become better, right? How can we add, not just how can we push onto you? I am a big believer that, you know, that it's, it's the hiring managers that own talent and they should own quality of hire. Now, again, I'm completely willing to sign up and be a partner with them in those, in those metrics. But if you come to me and say, that's 100% a TA metric, I, I, they'll never take that job. Like I, mm-hmm. that's a worst job ever. Do you know of any companies that are really getting that right? We see this a lot in like the restaurant industry or casual dining. When I worked for Applebee's, that was one where our general managers knew they own talent for their restaurant. Like they own, not only do they own talent, they they own training, they own the back of it, they own gust service. They, they knew, Hey, I own this. So there's no complaining to my, my next level leader to say, Hey, well, I just couldn't get staffed appropriately. Well, why couldn't you? Right. What did you not do? Did you not reach out? Did you not have a team? Let's think, let's take a look at all these tools that you have in your toolbox that you either used or didn't use. And let's have this discussion. It's not a hammer. It's more of a development of, you know, let's figure this out. But they, but there was no, there was no victim um, ish kind of stuff that happened. Right. I, there, it was always above the line behavior, which is like, I own this. I'm going to make this happen. And we, and so often we would have our leaders that would say this and we would go, that's awesome. Thank you for that. That's a, you know, love your, you know, your, you know, your personality around this, but we need, we want to help you, right? How can we help you? Here's how we can help you versus just like, well, I can't do anything. Right. It's just, I'm a victim. So. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. You mentioned Applebee's. You were also a regional HR manager, recruiting manager at ShopCo and Sparrow Health System. And so I'm I'm kind of thinking of those as your kind of major three corporate roles, high volume, high turn, I would imagine, and healthcare, not so much, but difficult to find talent in the healthcare space, right? Yeah. It was funny because the head, the CHRO uh, at the health system was like, you know, as soon as we met and talked, he was just like, oh my gosh, you're exactly what we need. (laughs) And then (laughs) the CEO who was actually was the former CHRO for a number of years and had, but he had been out of the position like maybe 15 years. He was like, he, 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 you know, I got a call from the CHRO and he's like, the CEO won't let me hire you. He's like, you have no healthcare experience. He's like, I want you to come in and meet with him for an hour. Like, you know, and, and, and so we did. And after the hour, he was like, okay, you're hired. Like he, he just, in his first question was like, well, how can you hire a nurse if you're used to hiring cooks and bartenders? Right. And so I explained exactly that the process and the science behind hiring a cook or a bartender is exactly the same as hiring a nurse. There's no difference to it. We all love to think like we like, oh, we're these unique butterflies. Like I talk to people in finance and they're like, oh, Tim, it's finance. We're so different. Like, shut up. No, you're not. It's it's exactly the same. You know, at the end of the day, you have an opening and you have managers and you have a process and 
you have to talk people into coming to work for your average company, for your average pay and your average benefits, you know, like that for their average job. Like it's difficult, you know, but as long as you know the language and you know the people, like there is no difference. If you're a regular listener, you know that I often ask my guests about what they're loving in TA technology these days. And I'm back here with Josh Zwain of Paradox, the makers of Olivia, the conversational AI solution. On one of my last podcasts, the head of TA I was talking to said she still needs convincing when it comes to conversational AI being a a, a viable tool for her team. What do you say to TA leaders who are still a little skeptical? Probably the question you get is, does it remove the human element? And I'd actually like push back on that a little bit and say... Um, it's not very human right now when when candidates get ghosted or, you know, they don't get questions answered or they fall into some black hole. So, you know, really, we try to set out to solve the problem of, you know, where does it make sense to apply technology to make the experience better? And where should humans still be involved? And how do we how do we make those humans more effective at their jobs? We don't view this as a replacement for recruiters. Um, we view it as a as a tool to make these recruiters more effective at their jobs and, you know, frankly, to get them out from behind the computer screen and talking to people again. How else can my listeners connect with Paradox? Sure. So we built an actual uh, demo experience. If anybody wants to test it out, they can text Big Fish to 25,000 on their on their cell phone. It's not a full Olivia experience. I think it's an intro. and It's a gateway and it's, it's the start of a conversation. All right. And I appreciate the Big Fish connection. Great to talk to you as always. And we'll be in touch. just want to talk about your your current role at yeah. HRU Talent and the fact that you actually started there right out of university, right? Was well, that your first I'm, recruiting job or? Yeah, my mom my yeah. mom owned the company. So oh, I didn't realize that connection. Yeah, That's cool. so my mom okay. started the company. So I always tell people, people go, how'd you get started in recruiting? And I was like, I was born into it. When I was nine years old, my mother started HRU Tech and she was a single mom with two kids. Wow. And it was back in the time when she would literally... I mean, you would only call candidates at night, right? So as a mm-hmm. recruiter and somebody starting her own recruiting company, and she would actually come home. She would put us on the bed with her. She would turn the volume off on the TV and she would just start making calls and we would sit there and listen to her. She paid us five cents to, she would address envelopes to send out like skills checklist to candidates and we would stuff them and lick them and she would give us five cents for every one we did. Oh my and goodness. We and an entrepreneur grew, was born. We kind of grew up that way and- so when I graduated college, she was like, hey, we're, we're looking to add, she, she called it at the time, a research assistant. And I had no idea what that was, but it paid $20,000 a year. And that was, that was going to be a great salary. Mm-hmm. My wife wanted to go to physical therapy school and she got accepted to a school in Michigan. So we packed the cars and we came, came to Michigan. Um, when I realized all these years later that the research assistant was really just a sourcing position, she just didn't call it that at that point. No one did, but I was just sourcing for a recruiter that I worked with and we just kind of did tech sourcing and recruiting for the auto industry. Terrific. And this was before the interwebs, I think, or a lot of paper, a lot yeah. of paper applications. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, Directories. Fact, we, had, we had some green screen ATS that was like more than is basically a Rolodex. computer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Electronic Rolodex. Wow. <laughs> wow. Very cool. Good for you. And uh, so what's the, the elevator speech for HRU today? Like give my listeners, uh, what, what, how do you summarize it? Um, I mean, tech recruiting for the most part, contract um, recruiting. So they work. So we have a couple of hundred like engineers that work for us kind of all over the country. 
And then we also do with some of our clients, we'll do some like normal kind of kind of a, a retained contingent search. We don't do full contingent because I don't want my recruiters to work for free. But so we do like a retained model, which is, hey, just you know, just give us ten, give us something right to show that you're serious about filling this position with us, and we'll start the search. And so um, we do about a bunch of that work, and then we also do project RPO, which is we get a lot of companies that will just say we're pretty good but we have this big bubble of work coming down the pipeline. We don't have the capacity and we need to fill, you know, 15 positions in the next 90 days. Can you help us? And mm-hmm. so we kind of project RPO that um, into a bucket of, of hires. So. Terrific. So, but not full RPO, not long-term contracts yet. No, or? it's long-term contracts for sure. Yeah. Our, our average contractor is on with us a little over a year. Um, I've had, uh, we have some plant engineering, like robotics people who've been on with this like over 15 years um, where they just go from plant to plant and stay on contract with us. So yeah, we, we, but that's the vast majority of our work and full RPO isn't, yeah, we're just, I mean, we could, I mean, but eventually you just decide like what you're good at. And I think we can help on the project stuff and, and get people over a bump. What I don't want is just an ongoing, like we're going to constantly, you know, I think there's a devalue in that process over time. And I have some really close friends who run RPO firms and, you know, the the frustration they feel over time is that little by little, um, the companies just want to continue to hit them on the margin side to the point where, you know, it's like, it's not even worth their time, you know, kind of doing this work anymore because we, we tend to forget how expensive it is to actually be, have a great technology stack and have great recruitment marketing and have great recruiters with great training and all of those things to build this great team. Because once we go RPO, we just keep thinking that it's cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and Mm -hmm. it's easier. And you're like, yeah, at some point it's not go ahead and have fun and do it yourself. You know? Yeah. Having run an RPO before, I can tell you that's (laughs) word for sure. The margin, yeah. The margin pressure on RPO is just ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's serious, but it, you know, can be a really cool business in that, if you're a recruiter who uh, wants some, you know, consistency with one company to work for, but variety with who you serve. I mean, that that I think is the value prop for recruiters. But you're right, the the, the deals and the contracts and all that stuff. That's um, that's how the sausage is made. That's uh, always fun. So, uh, okay, let's talk about your recent posts, which I found um, particularly not incendiary, but just. <laughs> mm, you know, compelling. If you want to kind of think about sure. some some of the chinks in the armor here of, of recruiting, so yeah. uh, it's which, it, which post by it the way. is. I think from <laughs> I write one every day, so of course, yeah, right. Oh my gosh, I gotta I gotta be specific. I think this was from four twenty eight. Five mistakes organizations make going after hard to get talent. Sure. So. It's super timely because I think, um, you know, we all understand the war for talent is back. If that's what we're going to call it again, I don't know. I've been yeah. through like seven wars for talent in my career, but, uh, you know, let's, let's just call it a shortage of qualified people who are motivated to actually pursue and accept a job. That's a much longer title, but I think that's, <laughs> that's what we got going on right now. And, you know, call it a, a variety of factors, maybe, you know, a little bit of concerned that companies are no longer loyal, therefore employees don't feel like they want to be loyal. And or, you know, in some cases By the way, I I, I kind of reject that that premise, right? I okay. Think it's been it's been popular for people to talk about. But I do think employees want to be loyal. And I do think employers you know, are loyal um to to employees. We we tend to go, oh well, 
they had to lay people off so they're not loyal. Well, no, that's just business, mm, right? Yeah, it is business. And, but I think when I talk, when every time, I mean, think about for the most part, anyone that gets hired into a company, they never go into that company feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to leave here. Or we never hire them going, oh my gosh, I can't wait to fire them. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's never thought of. Right. So we hire somebody thinking, this person's going to be with us until they die, right? Or until they, you know, retire or whatever. We hire them with that premise. So to me, that's very loyal thinking, right? From an employer standpoint. And then every employee who accepts that job, unless they go, hey, I'm here for college and yep, I'm going to work for a couple of years and then I'm going to, you know, go work in a different career. Like that's a different kind of whatever, but still they are taking that job with this belief that I'm going to work here until I know what, until it no longer serves a purpose for me, right? Um, for this, this statement. And so I think when we talk about it like that, both employees and employers are, are loyal to each other, but loyalty always has a point, right? That, as long as it makes sense. That doesn't mm-hmm. make sense, you know? And so I, 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 but it, the media and, you know, like they just kind of gravitate towards like, oh, well, employers aren't loyal. So no employer employees aren't either. And I'm just like, stop it. They are. Everybody's loyal. <laughs> Everybody wants a long-term relationship. I think Everybody. you're right about that. That's, that's yeah. really true. You know, interestingly though, the, I've, I've worked with a couple of clients who are considering turning that a little bit on its head, recognizing exactly your point that loyalty makes sense as long as it makes sense. For, for the employee-employer relationship. And could it also make sense for them to talk about opportunities in terms of come here and get this defined experience, and then we'll see. And we would love to grow your career, but we understand you may not stay forever. So here's the value prop. Come and get this experience, whether it be in you know, renewable energy or, um, you know, sustainability or, you know, some of the more trendy skill sets that people are clamoring for, but are trying to figure out where are those opportunities. I mean, can you, can you imagine having a client who asked you to deliver that value prop and would that be authentic (laughs) for you? Well, it's one that I deliver to my, the own, my recruiters that I hire. I mean, the one thing I will tell them before we hire them is, and I always like it laugh because it's kind of like a li- little bit Liam Neeson and taken is like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a certain set of skills, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and you might, uh, you might love recruiting. You might hate recruiting. You might be great at recruiting. You might be crappy at recruiting, but you, I will give you a certain set of skills that you can take anywhere in the world and get a job in any industry. Right. Cause if you can recruit, you can recruit. And so that's the value prop that I give them is to say, I don't know if I'm going to fall in love with you. I don't know if you're going to fall in love with us. I don't know if you're going to like the industry, but if you do, you know, we can do some great things here. But at the end of the day, I know that you'll leave here with a set of skills. Love it. Okay. Yeah. It is reality. So why don't we yeah. just sort of call it what it is? Okay. Back to the five mistakes, five mistakes <laughs> organizations make going after hard to get talent. Number one, they'll be cocky. Who Most of us love who we work for. So we have this overinflated sense of the organization. We're the best. No, you're not. So cynical or what? What? How should I take that? People just need to be re- realistic about their value prop. Yeah, yeah it's true. Like, if you think of like who's really the best, let's say, and let's say for argument's sake, the best employers are the top 1%. Well, that means 99% of us are not the best. That's right. We're, and for the most part, we're all about the same. There's very little differentiation in employer brand from employer to employer. Now, we again, if you're internal, you think, no, oh my gosh, we're bank A and we're so much better than bank B. Well, bank B is saying the same thing about you mm-hmm. and they truly believe it. 
Yeah. <laughs> and you might, you're like, well, no, but we have ping pong tables. And they're like, yeah, we have pool tables. Like, I mean, it's so stupid, right? <laughs> Unlimited like, vacation. Yes. Which, um, so I do mm-hmm. think like we overevaluate our sense of self as employers and, you know, and we start, we start to believe our own hype a little bit versus going, if we really truly stepped back and said, you know what, we're, we're actually fairly similar to everybody else. That's a, that's a better ground to start on to make yourself better. Because when you think you're up here, trying to make yourself go even higher is really difficult. But, you know, if you said, Hey, you know what, we're all kind of about the same. What are some things that we can actually do to elevate ourselves over the, you know, the, the, the majority? That's a, that's a little bit better thought process in my mind. So a little humility goes a long way. Is that I what I'm so. hearing? Okay. Yeah. All right. I love this one. Um, they'll not try something because it failed once before. <laughs> so Tim, yeah, we tried pragmatic job, job ads back in 2018 and it didn't work for us. Nice. Have you tried them again since technology's gotten better? Oh, you did an apprenticeship in 2005 and it was costly. So now you'll never do it again. <laughs> Love the sarcasm. Nonstop. No, I mean, this happens nonstop. My, yeah. The famous one that I get constantly is like for ZipRecruiter, right? I'll ask somebody like, Hell, I, have you posted those jobs on ZipRecruiter? Because it's a really inexpensive site. And by the way, for listeners, I don't get paid by ZipRecruiter. <laughs> you know, I'm just, it is what it, I, I just look at a lot of tech and it's pretty effective for the cost. And people go, oh God. Yeah, well, we tried that like you know, three years ago. We put a job up and it was just garbage. We just got garbage. Well, okay. Have you tried it again? It's like, I mean, literally it's like next to nothing to try to put a job up. But, you know, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you continue to try stuff that you haven't? And we just get, we're in our minds. We just get like, no, we did it once it failed. So it's going to fail again. Instead of saying, let's learn from that failure. Let's adjust. Let's try it again and try it again and try it again. Again, I'm not one to say, let's just keep failing and failing and failing, but like for for you to try something once and then not to come back and give it another shot, if you think, or you've heard, or you've done the research that other people are doing this for success and are having success, why wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. We get so stuck in our, like these, just like, oh, one time we painted the office green and everybody quit. We're never going to have green offices <laughs> again. You're like, are you sure that's the reason? Yeah. Like, Correlation, correlation, not causation. causation? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. My actuary son always reminds me, correlation, not causation. Don't, don't connect the two. They are um, the and, uh, and maybe even try a little introspection. You know, maybe ZipRecruiter didn't work because of the way we wrote the job ad or, or the job we had, right? Or the money we were willing to pay or whatever. Like, I tell people all the time, like they, they'll come back and say, well, we tried programmatic and it just didn't work for us. And I'm like, oh, t- explain to me, like, talk to me about your test. Talk to me about what you did. And they're like, oh, you know, we were trying to hire, you know, software engineers in, you know, BFE Iowa. And I'm like, well, you know, there's no software engineers there. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's why it didn't work. Well, no, it, the programmatic works. It didn't work because it can't magically make people where they're not, you know, it's right. like, you know, <laughs> and they're just, I mean, we just do silly things and then we say, oh, that didn't work. You know? Yeah. I have to say that's one of my favorite parts of having worked for Amazon is that they, mm-hmm. they fail a lot. They try yeah. a lot of stuff. They learn from it. They do the postmortem. They gather the data. They think about it, tweak and make different uh, approaches the next time and totally own it as opposed yeah. to, you know, sort of putting it out there that it was their fault or this didn't work. So, um, and, and the results are clear, right? I'm a huge advocate for testing. Like I, cause I think too often in talent acquisition, corporate talent acquisition, corporate HR, we tend just to develop an entire program. 
we take months and months and money and resources and then we get the whole thing done and then we're going to do the big giant rollout with a big tray of cookies and and then it fails and then we go back with our tail between our legs wondering why only 10% of the company actually you know did what we you know spent months you know putting together instead of saying how about i found one group one champion that we're going to test this with if it works we're going to just keep doing it with them because what's going to happen is some other champion from another group is going to go wait a minute why is Mary doing that and I can't do that? Would you like to do that? Oh, we'll mm-hmm. do that with you too. And then little by little, you're rolling out what you wanted to roll out as it's having success. By the way, if the one with Mary didn't work and it failed, it's just a test. We're going to stop that. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going we're gonna to self, we're going to adjust. We're going to try some new stuff. We'll come back with either Mary or maybe somebody else and we'll test again. Instead of you know trying these big giant like bolt-on programs that we try to roll out and then go, oh, I can't, why did this fail? Well, it's easy. We know why it failed, you know. <laughs> Spoken like a TA leader who's been around the block a few times. <laughs> I love it. Okay, this yeah. is the last one. I would one. call it a test even if it was going to I was going to roll it to the entire company. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, so last one. They'll be too slow to adjust to what moder- the modern workforce expects. By the way, a modern workforce wants flexibility. This is super hard for hourly in-person shift work. Obviously, the most affected by the whole COVID thing, but it's not impossible. The best employers will bring groups of shift workers together and find ways to add flexibility, to add benefits that shift workers find attractive. So any examples of this that you've seen among your clients? I was actually working with a manufacturing client in Detroit, and they were the standard seven to three, three to 11, 11 to seven, three shifts, right? Boom, boom, boom. Just shift work, shift work, shift work, crank out three shifts a day, seven days a week. And they were they were really struggling, and we started to analyze turnover. And in the there's one specific case where they had uh, a single mother that was working seven to three was really really good. I mean, performance all because we kind of ran some reports to find out like who's leaving that was high performance. What was the reason for leaving? Blah blah blah. And this was a voluntary leave of a high performer of someone that they really felt like she had won like employee of the month award stuff like this. And when we, so we dug in and we actually had to call her to find out why she really left because <laughs> nobody actually had enough you know, information. And it turned out um, she had a childcare issue. She had a mother who was watching her, her children and that would drop them off at school because the school pre um, like preschool program or the, like before you could go into elementary school, it didn't open until 730. She had to be at work at seven. So the mother would drop them off at 7.30. They would have breakfast at school and then start school. And then, you know, the you know they would have after school program where she would be able to pick them up. And so the mother got ill and it was long-term kind of illness. And so she tried to piece together friends, family, dropping the kids off. And it got to the point where, you know, she she couldn't do it. And, and the supervisor of her department was like, no, you have to, everybody starts at seven. You have to start at seven. And she's like, I can start at eight. And I'll stay an hour longer. And they just refused. And so we, so I went back out and went to the supervisor. I went to the line. I looked at what was going on. I said, so what happened if I told you tomorrow only half of your workers were going to show up at seven and the other half were going to show up at eight? And you, this is just it. This is what was going to happen. And you had to make it work. What would you do? Oh, I would do this and this and this. Wow. And it would work just fine. In fact, it might Great work question. better. And we're like, so why wouldn't you let her come in at eight? Well, because if I let her come in at eight, everybody would want to come in at eight. Are you sure? Did you ask everybody? 
No, the vast majority of people, because we then I went through, there's only 12 people in the department. I went through and asked all the 12. They're like, no, I come in at seven. In fact, I would come in a little earlier if I could. And nobody else would say that they were going to come in at eight. I said, so you basically let a new employee, a great employee go because your fear was other people would say they wanted the same thing. And that's what we have is like, we have this issue. We can add flexibility to shift work if we just start treating people like individuals and not start to not try to treat everybody exactly the same. We always mm-hmm. have this thing that, like, that, and again, I blame HR um, and I consider, and I consider myself an HR pro. I blame ourselves in HR for throwing this onto our managers, basically like forcing them to say, no, you have to treat everybody exactly the same. No, you don't. You just have to be fair to everybody, but you don't have to treat them exactly the same. Not everybody is going to have the same exact, you know, necessities. Is it more difficult? Yes. But in a modern workforce, it just might be the way you have to be if you want people to come in. And, and so often we just, you know, we're just like, I had, I, I was just I, earlier this morning, I was on the phone with an HR leader and we were talking about their process and their assessment, which was like over an hour. And they're just, and they classic, like Tim, well, if they want the job, they'll, they'll do the assessment. <laughs> no, no. Let's talk candidate experience, right? That is wrong thinking. Mm -hmm. They still want the job, but they don't have to do your crappy jump through a thousand hoops. Yeah. It's the shackles of the kind of old, as you said earlier, the compliance thinking, compliance thinking around HR and uh, boy, there's no salesperson out there selling a product or a service that is shackled by compliance. Maybe they, you know, have to put their information into salesforce.com and they hate that part, but, you know, they, they figure it out eventually. But other than that, we need to think like salespeople. And you would think like after going through the majority of the pandemic, let's hope we're not going that we were through the majority of the pandemic, that all of our leaders would understand at a moment's notice, we, we can change and adapt. And yet when it comes to their own world and their little microcosm of a culture, there's this belief that, no, this is the way it works and this is the only way it works. Mm -hmm. No, there's a million ways it can work. We just have to give ourselves a little bit of freedom to open our minds. And I always like go back to stop trying to make these decisions on your own, right? Bring your team together, have these conversations with, with no like you know, you don't have to sit there and say, Hey, we're, we're going to change. Right. You just go and like, look, I just want to discuss this openly with all of you guys. We're all adults and maybe there's a better way to make this happen. There's no guarantees we can do it, but let's just talk about it. And maybe there's some tests (laughs) that we can do Mm -hmm. and we can show the company that we can, there's a better way to do this. I love it. And that brings us to uh, sort of a, a sort of a wrap up here. What advice? What's your best advice? If you have somebody on your team or, you know, maybe even somebody not on your team who comes to you and says, Tim, I want to do what you do. I want to be you. <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you tell them? What, what advice do you give? Oh, I, I, I mean, I get a lot of people that come and say, oh, I want to be uh, an influencer. I want to speak. I want to travel the world. And I'm like, that's awesome. And I'm like, so here's, here's what you do, right? Start a blog. It's super inexpensive. In fact, you could probably do it for free on a lot of platforms and start writing and producing content and sharing it and, and engaging an audience. And I said, and do that year after year. And then little by little, people will reach out and they'll ask you to speak for free and you'll go and you'll speak for free. You'll pay your own travel costs. And then eventually you'll get to 
say, Hey, I, you know, I'll come, but you have to pay my travel, you know? And I said, you know, after about 10 years, like you'll be able to, you know, really go out and write a book and get big speaking fees. And, and they're like, well, no, 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 no. I, I just want to do this now. <laughs> <laughs> Immediate gratification. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, and, it, and part of that, I blame like social media overall, right? Cause they see influencers, right. That go from nobody. And then in, in 60 days, they have 5 million followers mm-hmm. and you're like, that's not real life. Again, that's a point oh 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 one percent of the population. The rest of us are grinding every yeah. single day mm-hmm. um, to kind of make it happen. You know? Yeah, like your mom. I'm I'm guessing you'd call her a grinder. She she did what it took, right? Best entrepreneur I ever knew. Yeah, that's cool. That is really cool. I am so glad I know that about you. Also <laughs> from a single parent family, also a grinder for a mom. <laughs> I'll tell you what, they rock, don't they? And and how fitting the two days after Mother's Day, we honor those people who sort exactly. of pave the way to make us who we are. When you right? can never, like, you know, when you have a mom out there running a house, running a business, like there was no, I could never go home and complain. Like I could never sit there and say, oh, it's too hard. Like I don't, <laughs> you, just, you just kind of grew up with this great example. And she, my mom never told me she worked hard. It was just, I saw her, right? Like she never you know, never had to sit there and say, do you know how hard I'm working? Like I know I can see how hard you're working. Right. So yeah. wow. we never had that. No, it was never talked about like that. Kudos to her for yeah. the example that she set and, um, the, the results are clear. So I am just honored to be able to have this discussion with you, Tim. What a, what a cool discussion. What a, uh, what great insights. Thank you so much. Um, and I'll continue to follow you and learn from you in your writings and your speakings and podcast and anything else you want to plug anything we should know that you're working on other than the two books that are kind of have expletives on the cover yeah the first <laughs> <laughs> the first book is out there the talent fix you can get that on amazon still doing really well um i'm always amazed i mean people from all over the world that send me messages and you know just complete you know just oh i just got done reading the book and you know stuff like that so it's it's pretty cool from that standpoint and then like you, I, I'm on a podcast, so HR Famous with uh, mm-hmm. Chris Down and Jessica Lee. And so um, we talk a, a lot of things, talent, a lot of things, HR. It's, it's more of a reaction to what's going on in the world. Like we'll talk about like what happened at Basecamp. We'll talk about, all, you know, stuff that happens at Uber or Google or whatever. And just the reaction of kind of real life HR, real life recruiting in the wild and like yep. how we would, how we react to all those things that are going on. Yeah. It's one of my favorite podcasts I have to say, <laughs> cause it's, it's so edgy. Um, we have fun. And, we have fun with it. Yeah. yeah. And I actually worked with Jessica when I, when I served Marriott years ago. Oh, yeah. So I um, yeah. know her from that and I'm, I'm super happy you guys have so much success with that. It's just awesome. So good luck to you and we'll, we'll continue to connect. I'm sure. And uh, thanks again. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com. 